Welcome to episode 109. Today's guest is the original Dirty Bird, who set the tone and helped inspire the sports and entertainment culture around Atlanta in the late 90s. Jamal Anderson, thank you for joining me on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. Everything's good. Awesome. Well, we'll start off the show today. What would you say was your NFL career highlight? Um, definitely, definitely going to the, uh, definitely going to the Super Bowl in 1998. I, you know, a lot of people like to talk about the, you know, 1,800 yards or the NFL record that I had at the time for carries. That's all fine, man. Like I said, I love my night. My night was just as much fun to me as 98. 97 when I got hurt the first game of the year, but still came back. And then the way we closed out that game, that season, that's the team that took us to the Super Bowl the next year. We started two. We started one and six, and we were on the cusp of having the greatest turnaround in NFL history. We were we were five and one going into the last game of the season, and we lost a heartbreaker. But I came, I got back. I got healthy, and I had a great second half of the season. And that was the same team that we took into the next year, 1998. So from the second half of '97 through 1998. We only lost four games. I mean, out of, out of we, we 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 were twenty and four. So it was like people people like to think like, oh, we just showed up in nineteen ninety eight and got and got to a championship off one season. I'm like, no, that same football team, the same characters for the most part, they were part of that ninety seven team. Now Tony Martin was a huge addition for us, and obviously was big in helping us get to the next level and get to a Super Bowl, but he really is the only person outside of everybody else who was, who was already been there. Well, now I want to go into the Dirty Bird dance that you're famous and well-known for. How did that come about? It was 98, and we were going to New York to play the Giants on Sunday Night Football. We've been playing good football. I think we're at the time we were like 6 or 7 and 2. I don't even remember, but... Nobody was really paying. Actually, we only lost one game at that time. But nobody was paying attention to us, really. It was like, oh, okay, the Falcons are playing okay. And I was like, we're at dinner. And I'm like, we have a history of celebrating. We had been calling ourselves Dirty Birds for a couple of weeks. And I remember thinking of, like, that history with Billy White, Shoes Johnson, and then obviously Primetime's dance. I was like, we need to do something. And that's when I came with the Dirty Bird. So when you were creating it, were you trying to make this kind of cultural movement and this phenomenon? Was that the idea behind it? To be honest with you, yes. I thought, like, we had a fun group of guys, man. We were really close. As I told you, the things we went through the year before, we were a tight-knit bunch. We had tons of personality. We had guys who liked to talk, you know. And so it was something that um, we were all thrilled to try to change the culture and how we how could we change the culture without changing the movement and that's what the dirty bird meant to us we understood that you know we were the atlanta falcons but we we took the name dirty bird on because we wanted to change the culture and the attitude and the way people saw us so you you'd be hard pressed if you ever went back and watched interviews and saw any of those guys refer to us as the falcons it wasn't a disrespect thing it was this is our new attitude. This is our new energy. And, and we're not the same birds. This, we're the dirty birds, you know? 
Like, yeah, I don't know what you dealt with with the Atlanta Falcons before, but this Atlanta Falcons group is, are the Dirty Birds, and we're coming to play, you know? And so that it brought, it brought that whole attitude, it, it, the dance, that energy. It was all like a full, full encapsulation of what we were trying to do, the energy we were trying to create, and in fact, change the perception and image of a franchise who uh, who had had such difficulty being consistently successful. What was your favorite time doing the dance? Was there ever one that stuck out to you, a favorite celebration? Oh, no question. Um, well, there were a couple. <laughs> Actually, the, we were playing the 49ers, and it was a huge game, and I scored a touchdown on them. And I remember getting in the end zone. I had to drop my shoulder on Merton, and then I scored. And I remember when I got in the end zone, I saw the red light on the Fox camera. And I started rocking to the camera. I was basically dancing for the people at home. And then I broke out what, to me, was the best version of the Dirty Bird. And they went right into commercial break. And when they came back out, <laughs> they ran the same thing. And that's the one that really went everywhere. That was one of my favorites. And then scoring the first touchdown um, of the year against uh, the scoring the first touchdown in the NFC Championship game in Minnesota, because the fans in the pregame were talking so much, screaming how I wasn't going to dance, how I wasn't going to do this, I wasn't going to do that, and I was like, okay. I remember going, I was like, okay, we'll see, we'll see. And so when I scored the first touchdown in that game, man, I was so hyped, I almost missed the dance. Where do you think the Dirty Bird ranks among celebrations of all time in the NFL? Well, obviously I'm biased. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think it had to be. I, I would think, based on how popular it got and the fact that, like, you know, next season, I mean, is there ever a game, is there ever a season where the Falcons don't play against somebody where they don't do the dance to them to try to, like, you know what I mean? Right. So, it's... it's it's like turned into something else, you know? So for me, like, you know, every now and then you'll see somebody break out Dion's dance, nobody's pulling out Sharpies, and now that they can, obviously they can celebrate now, so it's totally different. So everybody's always asking, oh, well, the Falcons bring it back. Like, Julio, Julio did it before, and then Julio had his own thing, but he's not a celebrator in the end zone, and you never know. Somebody may do it again, and if they do, great. If they don't, great. It doesn't bother me either way. But the fact that it's still people that do it to try to do it against the Falcons are like, oh, you know, that that tells you something that it was it was you know I think it's more than a celebration. It's kind of like an attitude that was part of the city at that time, and that's why it's still so so widely known. Definitely, I was gonna follow up and ask you that in today's NFL, what would your celebration look like? You know, that's a good question. I don't know that it would be a whole lot different. I mean, because if you, here's, a, I don't think this is one thing about, the Dirty Bird is not, it's not like it's crazy hard, but it's not easy. And you can mess it up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you, you if to, to do it right, you really have to have your arms and your legs moving and then that kick out at the end. Like, to do it the right way, there's a series of, of steps to make it, you know what I mean? Right. So it's not like it's, like, Dion's, Dion kind of had the high step thing. That's okay. I mean, it was a definitely a prime time thing, especially especially as fast as he was moving. It looked beautiful. It looked like it basically looked like art. 
the Dirty Bird is more like a the whole energy to it, where you're bopping and rocking in the wings, and that was a part of it too. Is like I'm literally doing the doing bird, like I literally created like wings out of your arms. You know what I'm saying? And that whole energy to bring in the Falcon stuff. You know? Yeah. If I had told you when you first created it and helped make it popular that we would be talking about it in 2020, that players would still be doing it now, would you have believed me? Oh, probably. <laughs> you know what's funny, though? No, just, Luke, you got to think about it. Okay. I, my dad, growing up, worked for... My dad, growing up, he worked for Muhammad Ali first. Then he worked for Sugar Ray Leonard. And then he worked for Michael Jackson. And then for Mike Tyson. So, like, if you think about those characters, like, all of them, you know, and then you think specifically to Ali, the way he talked and performed, and then Michael Jackson being a great performer, like, it was like, this is what, you know, it's like when I was at the Super Bowl, all the media guys were like, man, you seem unfazed. Well, I was like, I had been at, I had been at championship fights when I was a kid. Like, I was on the side of the stage when Michael Jackson was performing some of his biggest concerts. So I'm not ever, I'm not myself to them or, or being grown up or being around Muhammad Ali. But that's like how I grew up. So I had, no, I didn't think we'd be talking about this now. But I mean, I was trying to, I was trying to change the image and create a movement and change the perception of a franchise. So I, I can't necessarily say I thought, oh, in 20 years, but I was trying to create something that would have a lasting legacy, you know? Right. When you're trying to create it, how much thought went into it? Was it just like, hey, I'm going to go and do this, or was it carefully planned out? It was carefully planned out. Like, I was, like, trying to figure out how I'm going to do something. Like, you know, you know, the first time I did it in the Giants game, I just did my arms. And then the second week, uh, I scored a long touchdown against the Saints, and I had kind of jumped up and down, and then it was doing it with the arm movement. But I, it wasn't the same one that's known, and that's what I'm telling you. The week of that 49ers game, I was like, when I score, I was adding elements to that thing to make it better. And then that camera was on me and me only to the nation, and I started breaking it down, and that's when it turned into what it did, you know? Yeah, and something that you've mentioned, the Falcons were not the talk of the town when you got there, so or really a big team in Atlanta. So what was the journey like for you trying to establish the team as a major part of the culture in the city? Yeah, so that was my goal when I got there. I, I had never, Luke, I had never had, imagine this, I started playing football when I was eight years old. I had never been a part of a losing football season in my life up until the time I got to Atlanta. Wow. I'm I'm counting that, but they didn't like. I didn't play in '94. I, I I was on the roster, but I didn't really play. I didn't really participate in any of those games. I think I dressed for like two games in '94, maybe three, maybe four, but certainly not more than that. And I definitely wasn't playing. I was playing special teams and stuff, but I didn't really dress for the majority of those games. But it was my first year in Atlanta, so I have to count it, right? Right. So I didn't really start. I didn't really start playing until 95. 95 went to the playoffs. 96, um, we had a bunch of drama and injuries and all that stuff happened with Jeff George. Um, and then, uh, but that was like my breakout year. And then 97, Dan came in. We started, I think we lost, 
the first, let me see, our first eight games, I think we lost like four or five of them by like five points or less. But like really all of them were by like a touchdown or less. Literally all of them, which is crazy. And then the second half of the season, we went on that run. And then in 98, you know what we did. So the majority of the time that I was on the field playing for the Falcons, I, you know, we were pretty, we were pretty good. And then I got hurt again. And um, I got hurt at the beginning of '97, the first game. I, I still played. And then I, I blew out my knee in '99, which stunk. And then I felt like we had a good team in 2000. Um, no, 2001. But I got hurt again. So it's. It stinks, man. When I look back on it, obviously, I grit my teeth because I got hurt twice in the prime of my career. When I felt like we had good teams, could have made a run. And I think my injury certainly uh, diffused a lot of energy uh, for for us, which stinks because, you know, we, we could have been, I feel like we could have definitely been more successful than we weren't. Well, I'm wondering, you did get to spend one year with Michael Vick. Was there ever a moment yes. that you knew when he would be a star player? <laughs> but yeah, really, really, um, uh, basically, the first time, I remember one of our first times in pads, um, he was under pressure, and he made a move on a defensive lineman, and when he was running, uh, rolling, running to his left, he threw a pass. I was I was running a swing route, so I saw this whole play. He threw a pass down the field that I was like, "Holy moly!" I couldn't. I saw the ball come off his arm, but I had to like almost wipe my eyes because I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe the the, ser- the series of moves I had just saw. How he avoided the rush. How fast he exploded out of the pocket, and then the throw. I mean, the only person I could compare him to, I played with Jeff George, and people talk about his arm, that guy could throw it sidearm, and it felt like it was coming 90 miles an hour. He was a, he had a special arm. Well, guess what? It was just unbelievable. And I thought to myself, if this guy fully commits himself to the game, he, I, I, never, I would never have said this before, and I thought, I, I never even approached this, but a guy who could be like Michael Jordan where Jordan could take over whole games. In football, I don't care how talented you are, you need the other 10 people on your offense to really be successful and certainly to maintain success. Well, imagine a guy who's touching the ball. So I touched the ball, man, we are rolling. You know, like the U-Ball, we were undefeated when I carried the ball 20 times in the game. And going back to the previous year, we had a tremendous record. I think we were... I forgot what it was, like 20 and, I don't know, 20 and 4 or something when I ran the ball 20 times in a game. Those are excellent numbers. Michael Vick, I'm like, he could he could potentially, he's, he's going to touch the ball 60, 70, 75 snaps. He's touching the ball every game. You know what I mean? Like every, every play of every game. It's not like it's going to be an average touch just because he's a quarterback. And so I was like, if this guy commits himself to learning this system, and learning his reads, I don't see how anybody could stop him. You know, we, we've talked before about it. I, I would have loved to be with him for you know, two or three years just to, if nothing else, from a leadership point of view, because I think that it was lacking in many ways, and I think that affected, had an adverse effect on his time in Atlanta. 
But I would have just loved to play with him because he was a special talent. And who knows what we could have accomplished. But they did, you know, him, uh, Ward Dunn, and, and T.J. Duckett, they put up numbers. Don't get me wrong, they put up numbers. But I would have loved to see seen what I would have been able to accomplish with him, given a longer opportunity to play with him. But it, it wasn't meant to be. How will you remember the late 90s, early 2000s culture of Atlanta with the rise of the hip-hop culture with OutKast and Ludacris and Jermaine Dupree really breaking out, yes. the Falcons going to a Super Bowl? How are you going to remember right. all of that when you look back? Man, those are all my friends, like to this day. That was one part that, you know, people always ask me, what was your pregame music? I'm like, man, AT Aliens, of course. Like, OutKast first album, when it came out, um... And then, obviously, AT Aliens came out in 96. That was huge. Those guys were at our games. You know, Jermaine Dupree is still a good friend of mine. Dallas Austin, who was creating so much hip-hop and doing stuff all over the place. Not with just TLC, but Monica, all these artists. They're still my friends. So it was a magical time to be in the city because there were so many emerging talents. You know, I just saw a Goody Mob special the other day who, who was part of that whole organized noise collection where Rico Lane who's a friend, you know, all these guys, we were all in the city at the same time. It was, it was truly to me, like, you know, you talk about the best times to be in Atlanta. I'm never like, oh, my time. But that late 90s, Atlanta was amazing. Uh, um, from, from how centralized, you know, Buckhead was right, you know, Buckhead's right in the middle of the city. Well, that, then, it wasn't shopping centers and stuff. Then it was restaurants and bars and clubs and stuff. And we're young. I mean, we're young players in a fantastic city with, uh, with, 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 you know, having a bunch of fun with music being created. There were so many things happening then that just made it a magical time. And really the culmination of that is us making it to the Super Bowl. You know, I got to Atlanta in 94 and we, you know, we started doing all of these things and trying to change the culture and we made it to the Super Bowl, you know, uh, and, and, and the year was 99, but it was the 98 season. But all those things were bubbling up with JD and Dallas and all those guys. And Puff used to be there a lot. Like, you know, Big Boy, Andre 3000. Those guys, those guys were always at our games, and they were huge fans. So it was a magical time to be there and, and memories I'll always have. Awesome. Well, Jamal, thank you for joining me on the show. A pleasure. Take care, man. <laughs>